Chapter 14 Christopher Quarles, College Professor and Master Detective by Percy James Brebner This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Case of the Murdered Financier The division of the thousand-pound reward made the three of us inclined for frivolity and pleasure. I happened to have little to do, so we made several excursions and visited many theaters. Relaxation is good, but one may have too much of it. Certainly it was not the best training for the next case I was called upon to investigate. I remember a man of many convictions once telling me that he rather enjoyed picking oakum, a proof that one may become used to anything. In the course of my career I have become accustomed to ghastly sights, and when I entered that room in Hampstead, a feeling of nausea seized me, which had something of fear in it. Without attempting any close observation, I went out and sent a line to Christopher Quarles, asking him to come to me at once. It was chiefly my desire for companionship in my investigations which made me do so, I think. Still, it may be that subconsciously I realized that this was a case for the professor. The force of contrast, too, may have had something to do with my attitude. Two nights ago, the professor, Zena, and I had been to the opera, mainly to see a Hungarian dancer who had recently caused a sensation. She was a very beautiful woman, and her dancing, which was illustrative of abstract ideas, was impressive, if bizarre. Quarles had pointed out a man in a box who seemed literally absorbed in the performance and said he was a wealthy German named Seligman, who was financially interested in the opera season. This morning Seligman was dead, lying limply in a deep armchair in the study of his home in Hampstead. Owing to some misunderstanding, I had arrived before the doctor who had been sent for, and as I have said, the sight nauseated me. Downward, through his neck, a stiletto had been driven, a death-dealing blow delivered from behind, apparently, but beside this, his face and throat were torn as though some great bird had attacked him with powerful talons. The description is inadequate, perhaps, but it was too terrible a sight to enlarge upon. Quarles and the doctor arrived at the same time, and the three of us entered the room together. After looking at the dead man for a few moments, Quarles stood apart while the doctor made his examination, but I noticed that his eyes were particularly alive behind his round goggles. The doctor was puzzled. The stiletto killed him, he said, slowly looking at me. But these other wounds, the sudden explosion of some vessel, might have caused them, but there are no fragments. It almost looks as if the flesh had been torn by a rake. He has been dead some hours. Yesterday was Sunday, I replied, and this room was not opened. That accounts for the time, he said. The work of a madman, perhaps. Murder, undoubtedly. When the doctor had gone, after he had superintended the removal of the dead man to a small room off the hall, Quarles moved to the writing table. Glad you sent for me, Wigan. What has the wife to say? He was married, I suppose. There is a feminine note about the house. Mrs. Seligman is away, I answered. And as yet I have only interviewed the man who found his master. He was inclined to be hysterical. Two women servants had a day off yesterday and are not expected back until this morning. 
You're dead many hours, said Quarles. Was probably lying here yesterday, and we saw him on Saturday. I don't think he left the house before the fall of the curtain. No, I think not. He couldn't have got here before midnight, then, said Quarles. That helps us to the time of the murder. It would be a late hour for a visitor, and I see no card lying about. My dear professor, visitors of this sort do not leave their cards. Look at this pen on the blotting pad, Wigan. It might have been just put down, put down, not dropped from paralyzed fingers, nor from a hand raised in self-defense. It was used, probably, to make these meaningless lines and curves upon the pad. A man engaged in a serious conversation might draw them as he talked. That chair there was pushed back by the doctor, but it was close to the table, just where a visitor would sit to talk to a man seated at the table. Now, Mark, the dead man is found in an armchair removed from the table, yet a cigar was put carefully in the ashtray, half-smoked, you see, and the ash not knocked off. Oh, yes, Mr. Seligman had a visitor, of whom he had no fear, and who might reasonably have left the card. He would be careful not to leave it lying about after the murder, I said. It wasn't a man, I fancy, but a woman. Had it been a man, the glasses on the tray yonder would probably have been used. Besides, if criminals were always as careful as you suggest, there are few detectives who would be able to hunt them down. The very essence of your profession is looking for mistakes. Quarles turned to examine the French window. The window was found closed, I said, but there is little significance in that. If pulled to from the outside, it fastens itself and cannot be opened from the outside i observe said quarles how about the garden door yonder the house was a corner one there was a small square of garden and the high wall was a door an exit into a side road it was locked i answered so unless the retreating person had a key he would have to climb the wall the professor remarked that would require some agility the person who committed so savage a murder would be likely to have sufficient strength for that i said Quite so, Quarles returned thoughtfully, crossing to a leather-covered sofa and looking at it carefully. Shall we interview the servants? he said, after a pause. The man who had found his master that morning was calmer now, and told us a coherent story. Mr. Seligman had arrived home just before midnight on Saturday. They had expected him earlier in the evening. As he entered the study, he said he was returning to Maidenhead as soon as he had looked through his letters. He had a cottage on the river, where he and Mrs. Seligman had been for the past two or three weeks, and the master had paid these flying visits to Hampstead more than once. The man had gone to bed after taking in the tray with the glasses. It was his custom to put two or three glasses on the tray. There was no one with Mr. Seligman. The study had not been opened on Sunday. When he entered it this morning, his master was dead in the chair, and the man had immediately sent for the police. He had also telegraphed to Mrs. Seligman. Was it unusual not to open the room when Mr. Seligman was away? I asked. On Sundays, yes. Other days, it would be open. It wasn't necessary for you to sit up until your master had gone? No. He constantly left his motor in the side road and went out through the garden. He had a key of the door. Was the electric light in the hall on Sunday morning? No, but I didn't switch it off on Saturday. I left it because two of the servants were finishing some work in the kitchen hat trimming they were having the sunday off they ought to be back directly you suppose the motor was waiting in the side road ready to take your master to maidenhead said quarles 
Would it be in charge of a chauffeur? Yes, sir. When your master left by the garden, was it not thought advisable to see that the study window was securely fastened? I see there are shutters. Yes, but I have never seen them closed. The master often sat up late after we had all gone to bed, and he never shut them. I suppose he considered the high garden wall sufficient protection. Did anyone come to see your master that night? No. In this particular, the man was wrong. When, a few minutes later, the two women servants returned, one of them, the housemaid, said she had answered a ring at the bell after the manservant had gone to bed. It was a young lady. She gave no name, but said that Mr. Seligman was expecting her. This was true, for the master had her shown in at once. He told me not to wait. He would show her out himself. What was the lady like? I asked. Rather tall and well-dressed. She wore a veil, so I could not see her face very clearly. Was she alone? asked Quarles. Yes. Quite alone? the professor insisted. She didn't turn to speak to anyone as she entered the house? No. Did you switch off the light in the hall? I may have done. I do not remember. So late a visitor surprised you, of course? Only because the master was to be in the house so short a time. He has a great deal to do with professional people, so we often get late visitors after the theaters are over. The mistress... She stopped. There was the soft purring of a motor at the front door, and a moment later the sharp ring of a bell. That is the mistress, she said. The door was opened and a woman came in swiftly, young, beautiful, and even in her agitated moments, full of grace. Tell me, tell me, she said, turning toward Quarles and myself, as if a man's strength were necessary to her just then. Quarles told her with a gentleness which I had not often seen in him. I must see him, she said. We tried to dissuade her, but she insisted, so we went with her. The dead man lay on a sofa, a handkerchief over his face. His wife lifted the covering herself, and for a moment stood motionless. Then she swayed and would have fallen had I not caught her. My touch seemed to strengthen her, and with a low cry she rushed out of the room. From the moment she had entered the house, I had been trying to remember where I had seen her before. Perhaps it was some involuntary movement as she left the room which made me remember. She was the famous Hungarian dancer who we had seen on Saturday at the opera. Did you know she was Seligman's wife, Professor? No, he answered, almost as if his ignorance annoyed him. I'm going back to Chelsea. He had a visitor, you see, Wigan, and a woman. There's nothing more to say at present. I dare say you will be able to see Mrs. Seligman presently. Ask her two things. Did she expect her husband to join her at Maidenhead in the small hours of Sunday morning? Does she know of any woman, a singer, possibly, who has been worrying her husband to get her an engagement? The importance of finding the woman who had visited Seligman was obvious, but it seemed impossible that a woman could have accomplished so savage a murder. Seligman was a powerful man and would not prove an easy victim. Evidently, the professor did not believe her solely responsible by the precise way in which he had asked the housemaid whether the woman was alone. In the afternoon I saw Mrs. Seligman for a few moments. She told me that she and her husband had come to town together on Saturday. He had arranged to go to Hampstead after the opera, not to keep any particular appointment as far as she knew, and she had expected him to come on to Maidenhead afterward. She had gone back there after the opera. People constantly asked him to help them, but she could not conceive who her husband's visitor that night was. In answer to my question how her husband intended to get to Maidenhead, she said by taxi. 
He often did so after sending her off in the motor. When I left her, I visited the nearest cab rank and had confirmation of her statement. The driver told me he had taken Mr. Seligman to Maidenhead once or twice. Seligman would stop and tell him if he were on the rank at a certain time, there would be a good job for him. He had also been in the house to call for him sometimes. On Saturday, he had not seen him, nor could I find any other driver who had. Of course, he might have engaged a taxi elsewhere, but as it was not his habit to do so, the presumption was that he had not intended to go to Maidenhead that night. Quarles had talked about criminals' mistakes, but I did not expect a murderer to be so careless as to hire a cab in the immediate neighborhood. I found, however, that three drivers had been engaged by solitary women that night. The description of the first woman did not correspond with the housemaid's. The second was not late enough to be Seligman's visitor, but the third seemed worth attention. She had been driven to Chelsea, to a block of flats called River Mansions, and interviewing the hall porter later in the afternoon, I found that a Miss Wickham, who shared a flat there with a lady named Ross, had come home early on Sunday morning. She might be a singer, but the man thought she was an actress. "'Is she in now?' I asked. "'No. Both ladies went away on Sunday morning. They often go either Saturday or Sunday and come back sometime on Monday. You might find them later in the evening. There's nothing wrong, is there?' he added, as though the respectability of the mansions was a matter of concern to him. "'Why should you think so?' I am old-fashioned, I suppose, and I expect to hear queer things about the theatrical folk. Besides, there's a friend of Miss Wickham's been here three times today, and he seemed worried at not finding her. Oh, you mean Mr. Roten, I said, and the porter fell into the trap. No, I don't know him. This was Mr. Marsh, the Honorable Percival Marsh. He's been, has he? I said, keeping up the deception to allay the man's suspicions. I must try and see him. He lives in Jerman Street, you know. Yes, I shall go there. But I did not go to Jerman Street at once. I went to see Quarles. I'm perplexed, Wigan, said the professor, before I could utter a word. I've seen a man with a stiletto driven into his neck, yet as soon as I begin to think of the murder, something seems to tell me it wasn't murder. I smiled at his foolishness and told him what I had done. "'What time today did this Mr. Marsh first go to River Mansions?' Quarles asked when I had finished. The porter didn't say. "'They're not expensive flats, are they?' "'No.' "'You've got on the trail cleverly, but you haven't proved a murder yet,' he said. The first question Zena asked me was whether I was certain the stiletto wasn't a hat-pin. "'There might be a pair, and so it would be a clue,' explained Zena. It was too much of a weapon for a hat-pin, I said. Exactly my answer, said Quarles. And Zena went and fetched that thing lying on the writing-table. That came from Norway and is a hat-pin, though you might not think it. It was indeed a fearsome-looking weapon, and a deadly stroke might be dealt with it. I'm perplexed, Wigan, the professor went on. I'm a man in a wood who can't find my way out. That is literal rather than a figure of speech. In my endeavor to get out and look for a murderer, I seem to keep on hurting myself against the trunks and branches of trees, and out of the darkness about me wild animals seem to roar with laughter at my idea of murder. What do you make of it? You have been reading some ancient mythology, dear, said Zena, and I expect the great god Pan has got on your nerves. Didn't a solemn voice from the Ionian Sea proclaim him to be dead? Perhaps he isn't. 
Quarles looked at her and nodded. Come out of the wood, Professor, I said, and we'll go and interview Marsh in German Street. Knowing him as I did, I had no doubt that he had formed a theory. Until he had found out whether there was any facts to support it, was pleased to play the fool. I was rather angry, but showing annoyance served no useful purpose with him. He was keen enough when we found Percival Marsh at home. There are scores like Percival Marsh in London. No great harm in them, certainly no great good. Chiefly idlers, always spendthrifts, who may end by settling down into decent citizens, or may go completely to the devil. It was quite evident he took us for duns when we entered, but there was no mistaking his concern when I told him we had come to talk about Miss Wickham. I called upon her this afternoon, I said. She was not at home. You will not be surprised, since I hear you have been there several times today. Why did you call upon her? To ask why she went to see Mr. Seligman of Hampstead on Saturday night. Did she go there? Your manner tells me that you know she did, and your anxiety about her today convinces me that you have seen some account of the Hampstead tragedy. I do not know that she went there, but she knew Sir Ligman. I think that accounts for my anxiety. And for some reason you think it within the bounds of possibility that Miss Wickham may have attacked him. I may tell you that I do not believe she is responsible for the murder. He did not answer. Quarles, who had been gazing around the room, apparently interested in the conversation, turned suddenly. Evidently, you don't agree with my friend, Mr. Marsh. You are not quite sure that Miss Wickham is innocent. It is a painful subject. May I ask if you are engaged to Miss Wickham? Really? You... I quite understand, said Quarles. I am a man of the world enough to understand the desirability of keeping such things secret. Family reasons. Her position and yours are so different. It would be awkward if such an engagement were to mean the stoppage of supplies. The head of the family has to be thought of. Peers do not always go to the stage for their wives. Sir, you overstep the limits of our short acquaintance, said Marsh with some dignity. Let me tell you, sir, that you treat the affair far too cavalierly. It looks as if Mr. Seligman had been killed by a man rather than by a woman. You couldn't have read of the murder till this afternoon, yet you went to River Mansions this morning. What are you attempting to suggest? Marsh asked, his face pale, either with fear or anger. I suggest that you know why Miss Wickham went to Mr. Seligman, and it was upon some matter which concerned yourself. Do you know Seligman? Marsh asked. I know a great deal about him. Then you know that he was a different man, according to his company. You may have only seen the decent side of him, but he was a bloodsucker of the worst description. So he had you in his money-lending hands, had he? He had. Morally, I had paid my debt, but a legal quibble kept me in his power, and he refused to give up certain papers of mine. Which you had no right to part with, I presume, said Quarles. Miss Wickham said she had some influence with Seligman, Marsh went on, taking no notice of the professor's remark, and said she would try and get the papers back. What price was she to pay for them? Price? You didn't expect Seligman to give them up for nothing? He wanted her to go on tour, I believe, instead of bringing her out in town, as he had half promised to do. It was natural, perhaps, that your future wife should be willing to make a sacrifice for your sake. It was hardly a sacrifice. She is not good enough for the London stage. 
Besides, I am not engaged to her. Friendship is... I warrant she considers herself engaged to you. I cannot help that. Of course not, said the professor, but you were glad enough to get the papers. May I look at the envelope they came in? I destroyed it, Marsh replied, to my utter astonishment. That is a pity. If Miss Wickham says she did not get those papers, it will be awkward for you. Could you swear the writing on the envelope was hers? It could have come from no one else. And you think she murdered Seligman to get them? I am not to be trapped into admitting anything of the sort. As you will, Mr. Marsh, for my part, I expect this affair will open Miss Wickham's eyes to your your true worth. And Quarles took up his hat and walked out of the room. I followed him. In the street he took off his glasses and put them in his pocket. They were the same he had worn that morning. A pair he did not often use. The Honorable Percival Marsh is a worm, he remarked. Now for Miss Wickham, said I. There is no necessity to see her, said Quarles, I dare say. It is true what this worm says. She went to offer her talent cheap to Seligman on condition that he would give her the papers. I can guess what happened. They talked over the bargain, but Seligman refused to do what she wanted, and was able, probably, to show her that Marsh was a worthless scoundrel. Unless something of this sort had happened, she would have written to Marsh to tell him she had been unsuccessful. I have little doubt Seligman treated her in a fatherly manner, and then let her out through the garden. Perhaps he found the light in the hall was out. He returned to find, I am not sure yet, what it was he found in his study. But nothing to alarm him, I am sure. Tomorrow we will go to Maidenhead, Wigan, and see what servants are at the cottage. At noon next day we were in Maidenhead. There was a yard and a coach house somewhat removed from the house, and a chauffeur was cleaning a car. In the corner of the yard lay a large dog of a boar-hound type, but I have never seen one quite like it before. Is that dog savage? Quarles asked. He doesn't like strangers as a rule, said the man, but he's ill. Foreign breed of dog, eh? said Quarles, entering the yard. Came from Russia. The professor looked puzzled. It was evident that something interfered with his theory. Sorry to disturb you, he went on, but we've come to ask a few questions about the awful circumstances of your master's death. You're right. It is awful, said the man. The mistress will go mad. That's what she'll do. I shouldn't have been surprised if she chucked herself out of the car as we came down this morning. She has returned to the cottage, then? I suppose it was you who drove her up yesterday? Yes, and on Saturday I drove them both up as far as Collinbrook, and then something went wrong with the car. They had to go on by train. How did she arrive home on Sunday morning, then? In a taxi. And what did she do on Sunday? Head out the punt went up to Bolter's, where she would be certain to meet a lot of friends. I dare say you know the mistress is a famous dancer. That kind of people are a bit unconventional. Do you happen to know the Honorable Percival Marsh? asked Quarles. Yes, he's been here, but not lately. The mistress lunches with him in town sometimes. She seems to think more of him than I do. There's nothing in it. I've heard her laugh at him with the master. Is that the only dog about the place? said Quarles. Yes, he's a pet. Usually goes up to the opera with the mistress. He went on Saturday and came back like that on Sunday. He snapped at her in a frightened way when she came in here this morning and got out hiding for it. I was afraid he'd go for her. Quarles gave a short exclamation under his breath, and then he said in a rather an agitated way, We'll go in and see Mrs. Seligman, Wigan. And as we left the yard, he went on, You must make the servant show us in to her mistress without announcing us. We must take Mrs. Seligman unawares. 
The servant proved difficult to persuade, and I had to explain who I was before she yielded. Mrs. Seligman sprang from the sofa as we entered. She looked wild, almost mad, as the chauffeur had said, but she recognized us and forced herself to welcome us. "'What are you here for?' she said, and I started. There was a suggestion of a snarl in her voice. "'We believe your husband was murdered by Percival Marsh,' said Quarles quietly. "'It's a lie,' she shrieked. "'How comes it, then, that he has those papers which were in your husband's possession?' In a moment she had hurled herself upon the professor, and had snapped at the hand which he threw out to protect himself. Her strength was awful, and all the time we were struggling with her, she fought with her nails and teeth and growled like an infuriated animal. Her clothes were partly torn from her in the struggle, and, but it was too ghastly to enlarge upon. She was an animal in the form of a beautiful woman. The house was quickly roused, and we had to have the chauffeur's help before we could bind her securely. Then I telephoned to Maidenhead for the police. I thought a dog had helped, Wigan. That was my theory, said Quarles as we went back to town. I noted that a dog had trodden on the polished skirting near the study sofa. Miss Wickham might have had a dog, that is why I questioned the housemaid so closely to make sure she entered the house quite alone. When we were brought in contact with Marsh, I suspected Mrs. Seligman. Those glasses I wear sometimes are curious, acting like opera glasses, and they enabled me to see a portrait of Mrs. Seligman standing back on a corner table, and moreover, that it was signed. Marsh evidently knew her well, was in love with her, perhaps, and she with him. My saying that he had first been to River Mansions in the morning was guesswork, but by his not denying it, the fact was established that the papers must have come into his possession, or why should he have gone there? He must have known that Miss Wickham usually went away on Saturday or Sunday and did not return till late on Monday. I argued that Mrs. Seligman might have sent them, and that Marsh suspected this, hence his visit to Miss Wickham to make certain. It may be true that he did not know she was going to Seligman on Saturday night, and if he heard from the porter that she had left town on Saturday afternoon, he would know that the papers could not have come from her. He would hear from the porter that she had returned in the small hours of Sunday morning, and when later in the day he read of the murder, he would not know what to think. It is also possible, Wigan, that Seligman expected his wife to call for him that night. That their motor had broken down on the way up to town makes it even probable. I went to Maidenhead to see if Mrs. Seligman had a dog, a savage brute, who would attack at her command. Savage but small. The great brute in the yard did not fit my theory. God knows I didn't suspect the real truth. Strange that I should have felt that I was in a forest. Stranger still that Zena should speak of Pan. I don't explain, Wigan. I can't. But it has happened. A return of the human to wild and awful atavism. She went to kill to rid herself of the man who was in her way. The human in her used a stiletto or hatpin. The animal in her used claws. She will be called mad, and so she is in one sense but not in another, nor was it murder in the true sense of the word. The wild wolf does not murder, he kills because he must. Even the dog recognized an enemy of whom he was afraid. The beast was not ill, but cowed, and snapped at her, as you heard the chauffeur say. Had she had her way with me today, I should have looked like poor Seligman. Arriving in town, I found that Miss Wickham had communicated with the police, and had given an account of her visit to Hampstead, which closely corresponded with Quarles's idea. She had gone at that hour because she was anxious on Marsh's account, and it was the only time Seligman could see her unless she waited another week. He was very kind, and had told her that Marsh was a scoundrel. He was attempting to make love to his wife, he declared, who laughed at him. It was quite in agreement with her husband when he had said he would presently punish him by using the papers he held. He was expecting his wife to call for him that night in a taxi. She came and killed him. 
I am thankful to say that a fortnight after her arrest, Mrs. Seligman died. End of chapter 14